You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Wigeta Radio for the 1st of September, Tuesday, the 1st of September, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be looking at, first of all, we're going to be looking at Psalm 28, going through the Psalter. And also then later, not too much later, we'll be looking at a John Elliott project I had to do for college. And I thought, why not, like I did with Alexander Henderson a few months ago, share some of the things that I learned. Uh, it was an encouragement and a blessing to me, and hopefully it'll whet your appetite into looking into this most influential American missionary. I mean, I get into all that. He's He was one of the, who uh, I'll be going into the second, John Elliott, he was one of the first settlers on in New England and in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And um, yeah, really, it was a blessing to study. A bit outside my comfort zone, I didn't really know much about that period of history and um, attempts to reach the Indians. I think most people are probably aware of uh, David Brainerd and um, or some people or at least know the name. It's in Jonathan Edwards' works, but John Elliot might not be as well known. There's a new book that just came out. I might have to grab it there in a second if I get a break, um, called The American Puritans, which kind of went my appetite into a lot of the, the first settlers who came over to uh, the American continent. So, um, yeah, hopefully it'll be an encouragement to all of us in reaching what would have been seen at that time as, quote-unquote, the unworthy. And uh, sometimes there's always groups that are, we don't, quite rush out to evangelize and reach for various different reasons and hopefully it'll be a blessing in that sense um let's turn out to psalm 28 we'll read through it we'll we'll pray and we'll ask for the lord's guidance as we meditate upon it we'll pray now almighty and ever-living god father you are the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords and Father, as we come before your word, I pray that we would do so in, a, in, in awe of who you are, that we would see that you are our rock, our redeemer, our refuge. And Lord, that we would see you as our strength and that we'd, we, we would take refuge in you. And Lord, that no matter what we're going through, we pray, Lord, that those listening would take courage and encouragement from hearing your truth Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 28, again, as ever, uh, I encourage you to sing through these, not just read these as, as much of a blessing it is this, to read the Psalms, but also to sing the Psalms as we are on this spiritual journey on our way to that celestial city. We need encouragement. We need to be built up and no better way than the Psalms. You might not quite be in the position that I would hold and my denomination would hold, which is exclusive psalmody. And we would sing the Psalms a cappella, no instrumentation. There's, I could get into the, 
the theological, biblical, historical reasons, possibly for another day. But this, that the Psalms, regardless of what your theological view is, speak of Christ, they are the word of Christ, and we need to hide these, these truths in our heart. Psalm 28, let us hear God's word. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock, do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices and with my song, I will praise him. The Lord is their strength and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. So this psalm very much begins with crying out to the Lord in prayer and there needs to be a great sense in our prayer of our dependency upon God or we cry out that the Lord would help us to see more and more how much we depend upon him and we realize that without him because the whole point, point, do not be silent to me. And it's kind of like saying, don't be silent to me. Or I'm, I'm like one of those people who goes down to the pit. We're dead. Without God, without a relationship, a living relationship with God, we have no hope. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And then there's kind of an imprecatory sense, praying for the Lord's justice. says uh, verse 3 do not take away with the do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity and you're praying that the lord will be merciful to you and you realize you deserve it just as much as those people hell is the perfect outpouring of the justice of almighty god now jesus christ has taken that punishment and satisfied that punishment in your place if you have trusted in him and also he has lived that perfect life he has obeyed the law perfectly in your place so that god can look upon you and say righteous just holy not because of you if it was anything to do with you you would never have any hope of heaven but it's purely because of the work the life death burial resurrection of our lord and savior jesus christ but the Lord hears the prayers of his people. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. And we've got to have that sense of expectancy. Not 
that we're... Sometimes it's a while, it may seem like a while to us, before the Lord will answer our prayers, but we should wait upon the Lord. But at the same time, lies who are praying to, are praying to the one who answers prayers, the prayers of his people. And we take protection, we take refuge when we're in trouble, when we see who we are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, the first beatitude. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My, my heart trusted in him, and I am helped. And uh, to get through these days, these difficult, difficult days in which we face, we need the Lord to be our strength. Okay, so... Yeah, we're about 10 minutes in. We've got a fair bit to cover, actually, today. Hopefully that was an encouragement to you. Um, just give you a bit of a rundown. We're going to try with this program to do... I was hoping to do last night. Apologies about last night. I've been a bit under the weather since... Kind of since Sunday evening. I'm starting to feel better in the last few hours. I was kind of in and out of bed. But... um. Yeah, hoping to do this program, which I've been kind of sitting on for the last week or so. And also, I'm hoping to do another one maybe Thursday. It might even be Friday. And um, if you just keep checking back on Twitter or Facebook, I'm going to try for Thursday. Uh, next week, I will not be around. I'm going to be on holidays, something I never really do. Myself and my family were going, going away. It's not very far. We're not going on a plane or anything with COVID, obviously. We're, and <laughs> I'm a student for the ministry. I can't afford it anyway. So uh, we're just going to a cottage at the West Coast in the middle of nowhere um, and just bringing a bunch of board games and cutting ourselves off on the internet. And I I am the world's worst person for taking holidays. But um, I think it's important because otherwise you're not going to be as productive and stuff like that. So from next Monday, I'll be away for about 10 days so i'm going to try and squeeze in whatever programs they can squeeze in realistically hopefully two possibly possibly even three depending on what crops up um not promising anything uh we'll we'll, we'll do our best because really after this week there'll be two weeks i'm not doing a program the week i get back so um it'll be whenever that is scratch off next week and the week after, whatever the week after is that, um, <laughs> that's when we'll be back, Lord willing. Okay, so, the life of John Eliot, and to give you historical, historically where he, 17th century, born in 1604, died in 1690, one of the first major missionaries to the Native Americans, Indians, uh, one of the tribes, the main tribe there in the Massachusetts, I think it was called then, in Massachusetts Bay Colony, based after that, those Indian people of the day. And um, it, it, it proved quite hard, actually, to get information on him, oddly enough. Um, sadly enough. Maybe because I'm this side of the Atlantic, for those of you not aware, I live in Northern Ireland. And 
perhaps it's a lot easier in America, which would make a lot of sense that it's probably a lot easier to get information over there. Very few biographies. I'll recommend a few books later on. Um, the only main, the, there is a main book that you can get kind of secondhand. Ola Elizabeth Winslow wrote a book back in the 60s. And that was the last one I can find. Now, perhaps there are other things around that I'm not aware of. And you can let me know. But massively important when we think of missions, reaching people, especially reaching people where there's great difficulty. And it's it's hard. It's not just... Elliot reached a people... He was never sent to, by the way. He just had a great burden to reach the Indian people in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Starting 1646, that's when he, the first sermon. He tried before, but um, the language proved a difficulty. But 1646 was when he first started going to a place called Wabem's Wigwam. And... From that point on, it began about over 40 years of tenacious, never giving up work with those Indian people. Um, But Elliot wasn't a typical missionary. I say that because he was never sent exclusively to the Indians. Um, he His main calling was as a pastor in a church in Roxbury, in Massachusetts, which is not far from Boston. I think actually Roxbury today is part of Boston City, but it wasn't back in the 17th century. Both probably were tiny towns, villages at that time. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers of population. And just to give you a sense of how extraordinary the task was of reaching the Indians, they had no written language. They had no lexicons. They had no grammars. And Elliot had to take one of the servants, a young Indian servant <clears throat> who was working in, a, in an English household. They're, these were all English settlers who had come over, first generation, and found this young fellow who was smart, couldn't write, and Elliot taught him to write, and he learned the Indian language through him. But... You have to remember the difficulty of this. There's no written form of this. And Elliot had to come up with all that. Reach the Indians. Reach a large amount of them. Even got to the point where 14 towns were established. Covenanted. Any of you, any of you listening who are covenanters. Um, a, a lot of these towns were covenanted before God in in terms of both church and state. I'm in complete shock. You, know, you read about people sometimes, you go, wow, I don't know. How, I have no idea how Elliot did it. I have no idea how Elliot did it. And he's not viewed typically as he, he was not a career scholar. He was not a guy churning out material. He produced in his lifetime a grammar, a lexicon. He, 
more or less produced a written form of that Indian language. The the Indian language in in question was the Algonquian tribe, that that the language which they spoke. And he developed all that, not just so he could be known as some great scholar. It was so he could reach those people. And I say that is because it was extraordinary what he did. He went to extraordinary lengths because he wanted to reach those people for Christ. That ought to be the the heart, you could say, of missions and reaching any group of people unreached for Christ. Now, things are a lot easier today. And it's more shame on us much of the time. So let's get into his life after that uh, brief introduction. So... John Ely was born, he was born in England, he was born probably 1604, um, a place called Whitf- Whitford, and then he he didn't grow up there, he grew up in a place called Nazing, Nazing, N-A-Z-E-I-N-G, which is uh, near the east coast of England, in a kind of village or parish in Essex, this is kind of on the east coast. Now that's actually important, sometimes people would just, you know, biographically fill in information. Remember that name, Nazing. Nazing is important because where he grew up, the he moved over later in the 1630s and moved over to New England and New World. And so did many other people in that village. And they actually went on to become his the main body of his congregation, which he labored for 58 years. So it's pretty extraordinary. So it's actually more important than um, people might think. They, by by and large, ended up in Roxbury in um, in New England. So not a whole ton is known about Elliot's family life. There's this one great quote from Elliot, and he talks about his young life. And I, and I say this for people who grow up in a godly Christian home. I hope you're appreciative of godly Christian home and any of the godly Christian instruction that you got growing up. How many people don't get that? Don't take it for granted. And this is what Elliot said about his own godly upbringing. It seems like it was a godly upbringing. He said this, Hear the Lord said unto my dead soul, Live, live, and through the grace of God I do live forever. When I came to this blessed family, I then saw as never before the power of godliness in its lively vigor and efficacy. And so often what will be commented for various different obvious enough reasons, we'll talk about the dramatic testimonies, the the Martin Luther's and all this kind of stuff. He was raised in a godly home and this godly upbringing and his godly education led to the convictions that would eventually lead to John Eliot having to leave England. Remember, he was English. He grew up in England. He grew up in Essex. He grew up um, in his schooling. There was catechism. It was very common. There was prayer and doctrine. It was very doctrinal education. And just a little aside, we need that. We need that where catechism and doctrine and prayer are central in the schools. We can complain all we want. And, and try and run to the hills. Like, I I homeschool my children. 
but I, I do think we need godly schools. We need godly schools. And, and, and Elliot was very much in favor of that and promoted godly schools throughout his entire life. Um, he, he ended up in Cambridge University at Jesus College, 1618, actually came under the influence of R Roger Andrews. Roger Andrews, if you know anything about the King James Bible, the authorized version, one of the translators was Roger Andrews. So he came across and came under the influence of him. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, um, how are we about 20 minutes into this program? So he had a godly upbringing, godly education, catechized, and developed these uh, theological convictions from the scriptures, which meant, <laughs> he was in the Church of England at the time, that the views of nonconformity, they were nonconformists, weren't going to sit well with the growing tyranny that was going across England at the time. Um, King James I, formerly King James VI of Scotland, um, dies in 1625, succeeded by his son, King Charles I, and tyranny begins to grow. After that, I mean, there was elements of it, don't get me wrong, in James's reign as well, but it got far worse under Charles I. And also along with that, the growing influence of William Laud, later to be known as Archbishop Laud. Because of the influence of him, under Laud, who would later become in 1633 the Archbishop of Canterbury, people like John Eliot, his family, his neighbours, his friends, they were not safe, they were not welcome to preach within the Church of England. And they knew they had to leave. And that was a large amount of people who would have left England in, in that period of the early 17th century and ended up in New England. You got, you got to remember, this isn't an easy voyage that they had to make. It took 10 weeks to get across the Atlantic, and I'm sure it had its dangers. And of course it did. Now, so let's think. Let's think about the new new world at the time. I see we have to kind of frame where we're going to because John Elliot would do much of his missionary work in New England, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as it was then. Just south of that was Plymouth. You didn't quite have any of you from America. You know, you didn't quite even have Rhode Island at the time. Um, just tiny, just south of that, and then Maine. Is, I think modern-day Maine was still part of Massachusetts Bay Connolly. So that area um, was where much of the work, much of the settlement towns took place from about the 1630s onwards. And it was a kind of an exciting time of exploration, um, freedom and stuff like that. But it was to, to try and understand it from the Indian side, the, the Native American side, you have all these settlers from Europe it wasn't just English settlers either, but you had all these settlers from Europe during the 17th century. What did they bring with them? Um, and this isn't about persecution or whatever, but they brought with them illnesses that the Indians were not you know, immune to. 
They brought over all these illnesses, like things like smallpox and things like that. And there was a series of epidemics wiping out a large amount of them. It was actually pretty sad. That and also um, a lot of hard work to all of the new settlers. The There was a growth of these new settlers in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and receding you know, with this native population gradually as time went on. And that, that'll be important later to, to understand why why didn't more people try to reach the Indians in the same way Elliot did? Elliot arrives over New England in 1631, seeing that as soon as he finished in Cambridge, well, he couldn't preach in England, so he had to go to New England. He he ends up in Boston, and in Boston he he fills in for a man by the name of John Wilson in a congregation there. And John Wilson is in England, he comes back, and this congregation offers Elliot a position there. Now, Elliot was quite happy there, but at the same time, about six months later, after arriving in 1632, his friends, his neighbors, people he knew from the village, as I mentioned earlier, Nazing, I think that's how you pronounce it, N-A-Z-A-I-N-G, all come over and they end up in a place called Roxbury, not too far from Boston. They call John Elliot to be their pastor, and he accepts. He even, he kind of actually promised to them that if he was available, that he would be their, their minister even before leaving. Bit unorthodox, bit different, but that's what he did. Um, also in 1632, his wife-to-be, Hannah Mumford, came over. Not a ton is known about her. The only thing that is known about her, she had a reputation for warm hospitality, and um, and they had a number of children, six children, five sons, and one daughter. Uh, one thing that some of you guys might know, is the Anne Hutchison controversy, also known as the Free Grace controversy, or the Antinomian controversy. I'm not an expert on this. Anne Hutchinson, who was, whose minister at the time, I think was John Cotton, and she was teaching strange doctrines that she was getting revelations, and um, she denied things like the the resurrection of the dead, fairly serious heresy. And she was, it seems like she was fairly charismatic, and she was influencing people in different homes and in different groups and things like that. And she was spreading her doctrine. Um, Elliot was on the side of orthodoxy at that time. This takes between, place between sixteen thirty six and sixteen thirty eight. And during one of the proceedings in condemnation of Anne Hutchinson, now Anne Hutchinson is today seen as a, a heroine for religious liberty. Um, take that for what it will. You know, it's like um, we, we champion all the wrong people today, but I digress. Um, Elliot said this about during this Hutchinson case. He said, we are altogether unsatisfied with her answer. We think it is very dangerous to dispute this question the question of the resurrection. So long in a congregation, we fear her spirit, obviously in disapproving all what, what she said. Ola Elizabeth Winslow said this of Elliot's role in the controversy, just to get you in a, a sense of who he was. Um, often during controversy can shape us and what our ministry will look like and are we faithful to the Lord and all that kind of stuff. Winslow said this, 
In this early Boston religious crisis, John Eliot had put himself on record as a champion of orthodoxy. His witness against Anne Hutchison had confirmed in him loyalties that would be lifelong. Now, before we get into later on in his life, I don't, it would be, Eliot was far from being a controversialist. And in fact, he rarely, he rarely ended up in controversies of that nature. So um, he was not one to be drawn into controversy. His main focus was on his congregation. Uh, he had a very tender love and connection with his people in in the, the Roxbury congregation. Um, but in that time, over those years, a a growing desire or burden grew to reach the natives. Of course, when these English settlers came over, and I'm just going to focus on the English settlers, they weren't alone. There were other people there. There were all these different tribes. And how, how were these people seen? How were these people seen? You got all these English settlers coming over, and many of the English settlers saw, well, they were Christian to varying degrees and all this kind of stuff. Um, they saw them often as too wild to be tamed, you could say. Some of them didn't try too hard to reach them. There was only, there was, Ellie wasn't the only person who ever tried during this time to reach the Indians. There was, there was a, you know, a few pockets here and there, but not much, nothing in comparison to Elliot. But just along with all the other difficulties of the language, excuse me, and the cultural difference, we're going to talk about the cultural differences now in a second. The way they lived, it was seen, it was never, Eliot's attempt to reach the Indians for Christ was never that popular. It was never, I'm not saying that he was, people were stopping him from doing it per se, but he, there was never any widespread support. Um, and for many, it was seen as futile and not something that could be done. Not everybody, of course, there were people who greatly supported Elliot. Um, Richard Baxter, I'm not a big fan of Richard Baxter, but I've, I've seen a few quotes. Richard Baxter was a big fan of John Elliot's work, and he wrote about him. I, I don't know if he corresponded with him. I'll have to research that further. I imagine that he did. Um, also think more about the Indians. The Indians had been affected by a number of these diseases and what is happening more and more through illness and they're getting wiped out and stuff like that. Um, and little by little, they're losing more of their ground and they're feeling more and more trapped in. And it's very important. This is a very important detail. The way the Indians viewed land was very different to the European settlers or the English settlers. The English were very much, they set up their boundaries, no trespassing. Okay, kind of even the way most of us in the West are like today. Um, we wouldn't, a lot of people wouldn't like people just traipsing across their land and doing all sorts of stuff. The Indians were very different. It's not that they didn't have land, they did. It was just that they were, pro they roamed. And they, you know, they went around hunting and all the, these different things. So they, 
their way of life was getting more and more crouched in and they felt trapped. And that actually, to understand the conflict, some of the conflict at least, anyway, and that took place and eventually led to what was called the King Philip's War. King Philip's War took place in the 1670s and it was largely a, a war, a very bloody one and a very devastating one, which took place largely between the Indians and, and the new settlers. Now, it was far too simplistic even to say it like that because there were some of the converted Indians, some of them converted to Christianity, were not on the Indian side. I mean, you have to remember too, the Indians are not monolithic. There's different groups, there's different factions and all this kind of stuff. Some, some groups are pe more peaceful than others. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the, 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 the difficulty of the Indian language. No written form, no grammar, no lexicon, and often another difficulty that arose as well. I don't know how he did it, but um, words that we have in our English Bibles, there's no correspondence, nothing corresponding that exists in the Algonquian language. Nothing existed. So, and on top of that, another difficulty, Cotham Mather said this about the, the difficulty of the language itself. If their alphabet be short, I am sure the words composed by it are long enough to tire the patience of any scholar in the world. One would think that they had been growing over since Babel into the dimensions to which they have now extended. If I must translate our loves, it must be no woman, tain, moon, cam, now, nash. That's all one word, by the way. And Mather said this, I pray you count the letters. Mather's point was this, the words were huge. <laughs> they were absolutely huge. Excuse me. Um, that quote always makes me um, kind of laugh a little bit. The, the length of the words would test the patience of any scholar in the world. And that just shows how much love Elliot had for those people. Forgetting about India, Elliot loved those people. And I don't know when his desire to reach them started, but he believed, even before he began to learn the Indian language, he believed, there was some correspondence I read, that there was, they would be reached. Not necessarily by him, but as time went on, his love for education, his love for teaching young people, he would just, at every opportunity, try and set up schools, equip teachers, all this kind of stuff. He came across that young Indian servant, learned the language through him, and took the opportunity to learn the language, and then three years later was preaching the gospel to those Indian people in their language. Absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> just make a few points also about his love for education, because it was his love for education and his love for teaching. Not even just 
anyone, but he, see, he saw them as people. He didn't see them as savages. He didn't see them as difficult Neanderthal or whatever the case may be. He saw them as people. And in educating, he wanted to educate them too. Now in all this, he never neglected his home congregation. <clears throat> Which is another extraordinary thing. Very close relationship. There's no indication that that the relationship between him and his congregation ever afraid because it is dangerous if you're spending that much time away. It's difficult. It is hard. It's hard work, even if you're dedicated towards it, just that and nothing else. But he had a congregation in Roxbury. And as much as possible, a couple of times a month, he would go out. And this is the days before cars or anything and go to this wigwam, as it was called, kind of a kind of a dome-shaped hut um, by a chief called Wabem. That's kind of what it was called that. Um, but Elliot's love for education led him to that point. Honestly, he just loved teaching people. He set up the first Sabbath school in the New World. That's what, <laughs> um, there's not just one form of education that was prominent in, in, um, in America up until the 19th century. I don't care what anybody says about, J you know, what was it, Dewey and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's various different forms of education, but he was big into the planting schools and setting up schools, especially in Roxbury. Actually, just speaking about Roxbury and how well they did from an education point of view and how it blessed how it blessed places around them. Um, Mather wrote this. God so blessed his endeavors, his, uh, speaking about Elliot, God so blessed his endeavors that Roxbury could not live quietly without a free school in the town. And the same issue of it had been one thing which has almost made me put the title of Scola Illustris upon the, that little nursery. That is, that Roxbury has afforded more scholars, first for the college, and then for the public, than any town of its bigness. I guess back then that wasn't bad grammar. But anyway, its bigness, and if, it, if I mistake not, of twice its bigness in all of New England. Basically saying they're punching above their weight. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Um, and that's what I was saying, how we came across that young man. Now, 1646 is when he started preaching to the Indians at Wabin's wigwam. Interesting little detail, actually. The first sermon he preached, that, that I am aware of anyway, was prophesy unto the wind from Ezekiel. What's interesting is Wabin means wind. And... It seems from Elliot, Elliot really wanted to, you see, the Indians were very much about nature and all this kind of stuff. So he wanted with to use, to meet them where they were at, not, not to compromise the truth or anything like that, but to meet them where they're at and to talk about different things, wind and all these kinds of things and, and to use that and then, and explain the truth. So 
He also educated the young people. They would sit in the front and he would ask them very simple questions like, who made you in all the world was one of the questions he would ask the children. And they would repeat God. And these questions and answers were coursed and repeated. Now, another difficulty was... So there was language, there was the cultural issue and all this kind of stuff. There was also the religion of the Indians. Now, it wasn't exactly theological. It was kind of um, a fairly, what I would call at least, kind of a, a nebulous, um, kind of a nebulous, what was the word? Yeah, belief in the power of unseen forces. It was, you know, there was nothing concrete about it. Um, they struggled greatly with the concept of original sin. So much so that later professions of faith, in order for them to join the church or join newly established Indian churches, they they had to put that in there because it wasn't clear if they had understood that or not. They would say that, you know, they had sinned in Adam. They, they later professions of faith it was a it was a concept that had to be explained to them their 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 religion had many gods some good some bad they didn't have any sense of a god who would punish them for their sins that was completely foreign to them and what the punishment aspect for those the indians of that day was this that was something done by the tribe or the family so that was another obstacle to come o overcome along with the language and everything else like that. They had many myths and legends about creation as lots of places did. Um, Ellie would teach about how, how the world and the heavens were created in six days. And it was very important that he got across the difference between their myths and legends and the truth. See, the danger is when you go to a place like that and you're, you're, you're being a missionary to that place, it's very easy in such an environment where they're not very theological, it's just seen as bad or good forces or whatever, that they just blend what you're saying and you're, you're bringing yet another God into their pantheon, which is dangerous. You have to show that they, have, they must reject that falsehood and embrace the one true God. And they also had to embrace that the God of Christianity was not just some territorial God of one region. He wasn't just the God of the white man or something like that. He was the God of everybody. And that would take time. And, and, and Elliot wasn't naive about it. You know, the danger is you rush through, you, you pray a prayer like some forms of evangelism, and you don't know what people understand. Elliot never did that. He kept going back week after week. It wasn't just knocking on the door and getting somebody to pray a prayer and then going on Facebook. He went there time after time after time. And it was years later before churches were established and stuff like that. And there was no forced or manipulated professions of faith, at least not that I've seen anyway. The Indians kind of had, they had these kind of beliefs of the power of devils, witches, good spirits, evil spirits. And they had kind of these rituals that they would do in order to get away, uh, you could say, kind of a sense of bad, ward away the danger of such forces. So they wouldn't influence them too much. That, that's the best way you could kind of summarize it. Again, it's probably oversimplistic the way I'm describing it, but it was a very, it wasn't very theological, which makes it harder 
it makes it harder. You're not dealing with, you know, just like Roman Catholicism and here we've got the Council of Trent and we're going to refute that and show the differences. It, it wasn't quite, it, that's another extraordinary side of what Eliot did at that time. And they had to get across into their minds that there was a God who must be obeyed. And none of us have, have obeyed him. Who has obeyed in our place? Jesus Christ. And so he went through the Ten Commandments. Slowly. He went through the Ten Commandments. And you know what the sad thing is? How many Christians today are ignorant of the Ten Commandments? It should be one of the most basic thing in our Christian diet. A book that changed my life massively or you know you know those books that you read in the middle of your walk you've been you've been reading different things and you like them and stuff like that but it's just a book that just kind of made you go why haven't i been looking at this before thomas watson the ten commandments just did that for me um, there's probably other other books that are brilliant as well but that's and watson is not a difficult read he's not so I would encourage anybody, regardless of what level you're at, to get that book and possibly read it more than once and make notes. <laughs> um, so he went through the Ten Commandments. Here's a little thing, right? And I, every time I read this, I get emotional when I read this. Um, you know, I remember the first time I read it, it was, I think I found it in Will, Winslow's book. The Indians, after having all this explained to them, said this to Elliot at one one of the, one of the times he went over to Wavem's wigwam. Um, the Indians said to Elliot, "Why has no white man ever told us this before? Many years ago, white white man came. Why did they wait to tell us?" Um, I find it really hard to read. Uh, I remember when I first got converted, I was raised a Roman Catholic, and I remember thinking, why didn't, why, I remember thinking at the time, you know, first, why didn't some of the, those Christians in here, why didn't they, why didn't they come to me about the gospel? Why didn't they tell me? I never heard of this. Well, I was, I was particularly difficult to reach. I will say that, and I can see that now, but it's particularly, you know, just, why has no white man ever told us this before? Many years ago, white men came. Why did you wait to tell us? And what did Elliot say? He had no answer. All he said was, I am sorry. There's just something wonderful about Elliot. He just had such a, he didn't patronize them. He respected them. And he never apologized and watered down the truths. It's a hard balance. You're trying to reach people where they're at, but you're not watering down the truths at all. You preach simple, but not simplistic. As I would put it. As in, you make it as simple as possible, but you don't take out elements of the truth. And I would say this, who are we, what group are we not reaching, you could say, with the gospel? 
who are we, what group are we saying? Are tr- you see, we can all say, I can't believe they didn't reach the Indians back then. Do you know what? There are people far easier to reach than the Indians today, and we're not doing them. We're not. What, what people, what groups are we avoiding because they look a little scary? Or whatever. Or they're not quite our group. And, and that can be vice versa. Somebody might have come from a rough background and is afraid to witness to somebody who's rich. Or, or vice versa. We need to share the gospel with everybody. And of course, I know it's more difficult sometimes than other times. But it must start with a love and a burden to reach the lost for Christ. And I hope that's as heartbreaking for you. Ellie didn't see them as wild savages. He cared deeply for the souls of the Indians. He didn't patronize them. He, did, he treated them with respect. And he, he emphasized this. Whosoever will. He didn't spend all his time going through the five points of Calvinism or whatever like that. He was a Calvinist, by the way. People want to bang on about Calvinists don't do this. Calvinists don't. Elliot, John Elliot was a Calvinist. Pretty much everybody who came out of yeah, he was a Calvinist, right? And he emphasized this. Whosoever will, come. Come to Christ to be saved. Now, what happens with all these convert... Over time, a number of Indians make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. And... um over a period of time that happens. And what happens to these to these Indians, these natives? Again, I remember I was saying that the way they viewed land was very, very different. And that was their livelihood. And that was the way they sustained themselves. And I don't pretend to understand every way they went hunting or whatever, but they roamed. They roamed around the place. And the way they lived and carried out their business and all that was different to the English and different to the new settlers. And Ellie didn't try to just force mold them into that. So what they did, what they did was they set up these kind of towns, which were called praying towns, P R A Y I N G praying towns. And the first one place was called a place called Natick, N A T I C K. And Elliot wrote a book. I'll get the name of the book here. Elliot wrote a book in the late 1640s, around this time, when they were setting up these praying towns. About 14 of them were set up in total. And he wrote a book about this blueprint, which was going to be followed in setting up these towns, which would be covenanted before God. He actually spoke pretty positively, actually, about the, the Scottish covenanters in that. He didn't say a whole lot, but you know who he was talking about. He wrote this book, it was called uh, The Christian Commonwealth, or The Policy of the Rising Kingdom of Jesus Christ. It was written in the late 1640s, wasn't, wasn't published for another 10 years after that. But he kind of lays out his model for these towns. And he sees, it was the first ever um, book on political theory ever to be written on the American continent. Elliot is just a man of firsts. 
you want to talk about the first Salter ever printed. He was involved in that. He wasn't the only person involved. The, the Bay, I think it was called the Bay Salter. Can't remember the exact date off the top of my head. He also translated an Indian um, catechism. But in that political treatise, if you want to call it like that, he believed at the time when he wrote it, um, he, re he retracted it later, interesting enough, but he wrote how he saw biblical church government, or not church government, state government, as um, based upon Jethro's advice to Moses in Exodus chapter 18. And if you remember, there's rulers of 10, rulers of, was it 50, and all that, and this kind of system that was set up at the time of Moses for judging. And that's basically, he saw that as the biblical model. And he, in his book, he almost makes it sound like, this, and this was a common way of speaking back then, by the way, that other forms, not biblical, were of the kingdom of Antichrist. So by setting up biblical government, it was toppling the kingdom of Antichrist. Now, I don't think in the book he had quite developed his ideas as much as he ought to, but considering, you know, you couldn't be overly critical. What, what he did was amazing. But he did retract it later on because he got in a bit of trouble for what he said. In 1661, he retracted it and he said, um, basically any form of government. You see, there's not just one form of state government that you can deduce from scripture. And so that he saw that as biblical and that was it. That, that was His retraction did come forward later, but it, it, it's very hard, you know, be OTT criticizing him too much because that'd be just silly. But Elliot was a man of first in the, in the new world. He was involved in the first Psalter. I think that was the first book published in the New World. He printed the first Bible in the New World. 1663, the Indian translation. He That was his translation. I don't know if he worked from the English or if he worked from the Greek and Hebrew. I'm not exactly sure about that. Um, and what else? There's a number of... He produced a grammar, a lexicon, as as I mentioned. I don't even think that, that this language is even spoken anymore by anybody. Um, tragically, as time went on, are we doing for time? Yeah, I'm going to try and just keep this program to an hour. Tragically, as time went on, there was there was friction. And you're going to have to reference people on what's called the King Philip's War. I'm going to simplify it down to that whole feeling, the Indians being penned in. And the whole thing with the epidemics. And the English settlers, let's just say they didn't understand each other. And there was conflict and... There was a war started off by, I, mean, I think it was one of the Indian chiefs in, I think it was 1676. It's, mine escapes me when it was called King Philip's War. It's got nothing to do with anybody called King Philip, but I digress. But a war broke broke out. Elliot had done a lot of work. A lot of these um, praying towns had been established based upon 
you know, first of all, Natick was set up. Lots of churches were set up there. And then they planted, which were more or less, Natick was the, the, the template and Elliot's book was the template. I'm not saying he was the only person involved in it. He wasn't, but he was the main person driving it all. Um, very much a leader of the efforts to reach the Indians. Eventually, that war, that devastating war, which took place in the 1670s, I think it was like 1676, 1677. Some of the sources say wider dates like 1675, 1678. But in that, that war in the 1670s, apparently one of the per head of population population was either the bloodiest or one of the bloodiest uh, wars per head of population on the American continent within what is today called the United States. Obviously, the United States didn't exist back then. Um, and it had a devastating effect, wiping out most of the praying towns. Some were rebuilt. I think about, I think about three or four were rebuilt, but it was, it was a devastating loss. And along with that, many of the Bibles that were produced, wiped out. Uh, um, a lot of the efforts to reach the Indians was funded by England, and there was kind of a missionary society kind of thing was set up. Um, I think it was I think it was called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, or words to that effect. Um, a lot of money came over from England anyway to to fund that. I think it was actually published in London the Bible. And, but because of the war and everything else that was kind of going on and the war just exacerbated the divisions, the ethnic divisions and the distrust one side or the other. Again, there were, there were, and Elliot even wrote about this, that he was sad that he didn't write more accounts of the godly example of many of the Indians because they weren't all troublemakers or anything else like that. But, um, very sad, some misunderstandings on either side. Um, what happened then, a large number of the Indians, some of them fell back into sin. It's really, really tragic. Um, so there was a loss of the Bibles. Some of them fell back into sin, fell back into the world, apostatized, basically. It wasn't all doom and gloom. I don't, <laughs> don't know. It wasn't all doom and gloom, but that was a major setback with that war that took place. <coughs> because of that distrust and because of that division that, that existed. But here's one of the most remarkable things about John Elliot. He never, I, I have no indication from the sources, he never gave up. Can you imagine you're laboring for, what, 30 years and a war breaks out and much of your, your life's work is wiped out. He keeps going. You think that's easy? It's not easy. It's not easy at all. Quitting is, is a lot easier, at least short term. He, he kept going. That's what's remarkable about him. There was no... It was harder to get funding from England to fund the second edition of the Indian Bible. It eventually came in 1685. Bit of a story there, but it looked like initially it was only going to the New Testament. Through Eliot's tenacity and tenaciousness, he kept going. And eventually, kind of last minute kind of thing, I think the printer said he would cover the costs. 
and he was later on in his life, he never gave up on it. He kept going, he kept going. Still minister of Roxbury at the time. Um, the second edition comes out in, in 1685. He dies five years later. And we have to remember this. Some of the people, there were many people who led to the Lord through his efforts. And there were also people who were led to the Lord who eventually became ministers. Themselves, natives, who went on to become ministers, and they themselves went on to continue to minister. Also, John Elliot's sons, I think he's three son, three of his sons, were also preachers to the Indian people. It's just remarkable. If you take away anything, he never gave up. And what his life proved, and what the difficulties that may come, shows the what can be done by the Lord through someone dedicated to God and dedicated to a life to reaching the lost for Christ. Being persistent, keep going back and back and back and and Elliot kept doing it. He kept going back there. He he never he kept going back, revisiting the Indians, trying to help them, and etc. and so on. And that must have come out of a deep love for them, seeing them as people in need of Christ. Just give you a couple of biographies, because like again. I am no expert on John Elliot. I'd love to read more about him. I think he's a fascinating person. A couple of um, books there. Ola Elizabeth Winslow. Ola Elizabeth Winslow. Her book. Um, I think it's a woman. Anyway. Um, no, yeah. Ola Elizabeth. Yeah, I imagine so. Ola Elizabeth Winslow. Uh, her book. John Elliot, Apostle to the Indians. That was the nickname he kind of got. Apostle to the Indians. Um, another book that just came out, Dustin Bang, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and Nathan Pickowitz. Um, I'm most of the way through the book. I've written, I've read mo most of it. I've got a chapter two left. Um, the American Puritans, Reformation Heritage books. It's just come out, and uh, what I've read so far, I like. And John Eliot. There's a number of books written by John Eliot that you can find online. They're not very long. They're about 40 pages long. Um, if you want to read John Eliot's book on the Christian Commonwealth, curious what he said, it is, you can get it online. I can, if you email me, films at gmail.com, I can send you a link. Um, there's also a couple of different articles that have been written. Um, again, if you're interested, you can let me know. But it, it's surprisingly difficult to find find works even even print on demand I, there was two books written in the 19th century just couldn't get them so hopefully that was a blessing to you and hopefully that hopefully that it might be speaking to the right person today maybe you're in ministry or whatever in your in your life it doesn't necessarily have to be full-time ministry and something's difficult <laughs> think of the difficulties men of the past and Elliot and all that, and they kept on going. And you know what? We need to do that. We just need to keep on, we need to keep 
trusting in the Lord, not in our own strength, because we'll fail if we go in our own strength. But we need to keep on going, going back and back and back and back. You know what? One thing that devastates is unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. Men think they're going to go for a year, transform a whole congregation or whatever the case is in, in six months or whatever the case may be. Just be prepared. Now, the Lord can do anything and nothing restrains him. By saying by fewer, by many. But keep laboring and laboring and pray that the Lord will bless your labor. This has been Paul Flynn. Talk to you again soon.